Back to school. Back to school. Everybody is going back to school. It's almost Labor Day officially, and it's that weekend where moms and dads really all over the state of Maryland are getting little Johnny and Susie, and in our case, little Josh and Paige, ready for their first day on Tuesday in Montgomery County Public Schools. We're excited. It's been a great summer, and my good friend who's joining me this evening, Jill Artman Faust, who is a member of our Montgomery County Board of Education, would be happy to know that our kids did participate in all of their summer reading and did all their summer math, Jill. Wow, and, uh, I'm so, <laughs> we made sure of it every day. Every day we had Paige and Josh do a little bit of math, a little bit of reading. They read several books on their vacations. Uh, they went on more vacation than Kim and I did. Um, we only got away for like a few days. We went up to Maine, and that was it. But we we spent a lot of pull time in our um, in our HOA and read some books. So. Look, hey, it's that time. They're ready to go back to school. I'm ready for them to go back to school. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of parents are ready for their kids to go back to school. And uh, this this has been kind of a long summer, as you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think the excitement of the first day uh, is present everywhere. It's present with our teachers, with our parents, with our kids. There's always some nervousness around that but also a lot of excitement. Our kids are ready to see their friends and meet their teachers uh, and get started on that journey. Yeah, I am am very excited for Paige and Josh because this year is two important years in our household, Jill. Paige is going into fifth grade at Trevilla Elementary School, and Josh is going into eighth grade at Robert Frost. Both great schools, excellent teachers, and I have to tell you, I am so proud of Montgomery County Public Schools in so many ways. We really do have a world-class education system here in our neck of the woods, and we've been blessed with um, a great education experience. Our teachers are hands-on. They're communicative. Every time we have any sort of issues or needs to get in touch, we always contact the teachers directly. Just there's so much it, since I have I'm been glad in, you mentioned that. I'm really yeah. glad you mentioned that because um, that's so important. Our teachers want to be in communication with our parents, and parent engagement makes a huge difference in the success of our children in our schools. And we always tell them, if you have an issue, go directly to your teacher. Your teacher wants to help you and wants to support your child. It's funny because in my neighborhood, we have a very active listserv. And we will have, I don't know if you have a neighborhood listserv where you are, and people will go on a listserv and say whatever their issues are or whatever their questions are, instead of actually going directly to the teacher. Or they'll jump straight to the principal without talking to the teacher. Or they'll even jump the principal and go straight to the Board of Education. And the really the best place to start if you have any questions is with your child's teacher because they have the most vested interest. We all have a vested interest. But they know your teacher. They know your student best. And they're invested in your child's success. So I'm really glad that you always start with the teacher. That's what we want to, that's what we want to happen. And then for the first day of school, I just want to encourage parents, one of the biggest traditions I know with our parents is taking pictures 
the first day of school oh, year. Yeah. Yeah. And we want you to post your pictures on Twitter at hashtag MCPS first day, one ST day, so we can see everybody's pictures from around our county because that's always a lot of fun. And I have to tell you a funny story. My daughter just uh, entered the University of Maryland at College Park, and her first Good day of classes this week, yeah, I'm very proud, we're very proud of her, uh, was uh, Monday this week, and she had her roommate take a picture and sent it to us first day of class in the tradition of we always take a picture on the first day of class. And um, so, yeah, so post those pictures. It's a very, very exciting day. The other thing you mentioned is that your kids are going into fifth grade and eighth grade. The transition between fifth grade to sixth grade is very big, and the transition between eighth grade to ninth grade is very big. And this is something that our superintendent is very focused on, is transition data. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that our kids are having good transitions from elementary into middle school and middle school to high school, and we want to follow them. We want to follow their data and see that they're being successful when they make transitions. So that's, that's one of the markers that our superintendent is using for greater accountability for all of our students in Montgomery County, as we do want, as he always says, all means all, all of our kids to be successful throughout the district. Jill, I tell you what we're really excited about is in a few years, all of both of the kids will be at Wooten High School. We can't tell you how excited mm. we are. I, I, it's one of the best schools in the country. In the country. And we know yep. how competitive it's going to be. Our son, Josh, is he is a musician. He's very talented. And academic-wise, both of our kids are excelling rapidly, and we're pleased. Um, they're just right where they need to be, and plus some. And as you know, education doesn't stop inside of a classroom, very much so. Travels back into the home with um, education reinforcement, with parents, with Mm -hmm. extracurriculars, with reading. There's all sorts of forms of of education that takes place, not just inside of the classroom and inside of MCPS brick-and-mortar classrooms. But we were really excited because MCPS has done a fantastic job of beginning to <laughs> I hear your dog. <laughs> yes. She's very loud and she gets excited. I'm gonna close maybe, my office door here. Maybe the doggy is ready to go back to school. <laughs> doggy daycare. Well, the dog misses the kids, I gotta tell you, so Well what I was gonna say and yeah and Jill, Montgomery County Public Schools does a great service and that at an early age, a young age they are beginning to guide students into a, let's say, a career journey, a pathway to mm-hmm. – they're pushing students into a direction of what they want to find out, what they want to do with their career, with their life. And look, it's no secret, Kim and I have taken Josh to two of John Delaney's military academy nights, right? So we are mm-hmm. strongly pushing Josh to consider – the Naval Academy. We, we yeah. really, really want Josh to go to the Navy Naval Academy. Now, it's, of course, it's 100%. Um, it, he's going to have to find his way. He's going to have to know where, what he wants to do, where he wants to go. But in our family, military service, public service is an important function of our lifestyle. We believe in it, um, and we believe that mm. military service is a – I don't want to say an absolute must – but it's something that we value and we place at the very top of our list. 
And of course, they have to figure it out on their own, but we're giving, we're giving them the, the very gentle nudge in that direction. Because look, military service, going to college, we have a good friend of ours who her daughter is at the University of Maryland. She is a friend, I believe she's a sophomore this year, and she is in the Air Force ROTC program. Mm-hmm. And it's it, the, the, the discipline that it instills early and, and then graduating as a second lieutenant, an, Ar- an, RV, an Army officer, a Navy officer. As an officer. I can tell you that my oh. uh, father was as, this, in the exact same camp as you are, and I was actually a Naval ROTC finalist, uh, scholarship finalist <laughs> for college, uh, but I did not end up going into the – he really wanted me to go to the Naval Academy, I can tell you. Um, I think that is an excellent – um, possibility, an excellent choice. Many of our kids go into the military after high school, and I know a lot God of my them. son's friends at his high school go into the military. And um, it certainly is a, a one of the many options that we want our kids to be prepared to take, yeah. and certainly there's no greater service uh, to our country than uh, people who are willing to give their lives to our country to for um, our country. Um, So I certainly see that as a worthy goal. But I um, also just want to say, as your child goes into high school, something that I like to remind people of, and I I know that you have very lofty goals, which is wonderful. We want all of our kids to have high expectations and and be challenged. Um, But we also want our kids to have balance in high school because uh, high school can be very challenging. We do have a lot of kids that take advanced placement classes, which are college-level classes. Um, But like you said, your child plays an instrument. Music, the arts are also very important. And we we know um, many colleges and other institutions really look at a um, well-balanced high school experience. And we want kids to be have a well-balanced high school experience. So it's just something to keep in mind. Uh, a lot of our kids don't end up going to college right out of um, high school because they simply can't afford it or that's not an option for them or that's not right. what they desire. And what we're doing now, uh, one of the goals of our superintendent is to graduate four kids with CTE certifications the next mm-hmm. before, which is um, career and technical education. So that if our kids don't go to college, they still still have certifications which can lead to a career, a vocational career, which um, in many, as you are well aware, can lead to as good or better salaries than our kids that receive college education. So um, our goal is to prepare all kids to be ready to go to college if that's what they choose, but also to provide them with a variety of other options if college right away is not on on their um, it, it is, is not really in the cards for when they graduate. And the majority of kids in college right now are working and going to college to be able to afford to go to college. So we want our kids to be able to earn a living wage when they leave uh, our school. That's really important to us. Jill, let's talk about um, some of the issues, so a little bit of policy. And first, let's start out. School is, of course, for the first time in in a long time, has been pushed back to after Labor Day, and this was done 
um, at the stroke of a pen by Governor Hogan's executive order that was signed last year in August. And if you remember, Mm -hmm. he went down to Ocean City and he stood on the boardwalk with Peter Franco and many other state leaders and members of his administration. And many parents, and look, I'm I'm a big fan of Governor Hogan in many ways. And mm-hmm. when I agree yep. with him, I will certainly say so. And when I disagree with him, I will also say so. And his decision uh, to move schools, the school start date to post-Labor Day was a little disconcerting for many of us. And I'll tell you why. I don't believe that it's the state's job, nonetheless, the governor's role to dictate individual school districts calendars. I think that was wrong. I don't think he made the right decision in that. And I told many of the school districts, I said, you know, you should fight back on this, file a petition. And I think Montgomery County attempted to file a waiver, but I don't think that it worked out in our benefit. No, it didn't. And I have to tell you that this, that um, I I definitely hear your concerns. I know that the governor is very popular, and um, I have actually spoken with the comptroller, Peter Franchot, about this specific issue as um, a great concern to us as a county, first of all, because, as you say, local control is really important when it comes to school systems. Our Absolutely. Count, our, our school system is informed by the values of our community, um, the logistics of our community. We have school systems across Maryland who have frankly, different weather. Uh, to the west, we, they can have huge snowstorms, um, which can impact their school days and, and how much they have to take off. Uh, we also have different traditions in different school districts districts from agricultural um, days, uh, from farming communities to military days uh, in big military districts. So it's really important that districts be able to determine their own calendar. Um, That's one piece of this. The other is that in Montgomery County, we have had a growing number of families in poverty. Over 40% of our families have been uh, in poverty at some point. We call it farms eligible, free or reduced lunch eligible. Yeah. Uh, so we have more kids um, now that are free or reduced farms, called, we call it farms eligible, free or reduced lunch eligible, than all of the students in the D.C. public school system. And um, a lot of the wonderful, enriching things that we're able to do, fit parents with resources over the summer from camps to travel, uh, our families who are facing poverty, living in poverty, are not able to take advantage of. And so there's this concept of blind, uh, which has been well documented and teachers can tell you about when kids don't have learning, and you sound like you've done a wonderful job of being able to support your kids over the summer with learning opportunities, but our kids that um, live in much more fragile circumstances don't have that opportunity, and they really lose ground over the summer, and that's a big concern. We have tried to make sure that they have meals, because this is also a huge issue, is that our school system provides uh, food for our kids and through 164 programs this summer at 111 
sites. We were able to provide breakfast and lunch meals for our kids. But food insecurity is a huge issue in Montgomery County. I know a lot of people think of us as being very wealthy, and we do have a wealthy population, but we also have a very fragile population. And uh, for the best outcome for for Montgomery County, we would invest in the best outcome for all of our kids. So um, that's another one of the issues about having a longer summer. Well, I I agree, and on many fronts. And I, while I think the governor was well intentioned in his executive order, I don't agree with the method in which the the policy was enacted. It, I have major issues on the whole with executive orders, both at the state and federal level. If mm-hmm. po- if policy is is generally reserved for a legislative body, I would have preferred to see. The Maryland House or the General Assembly rather push this forward if that is indeed what parents wanted or if what constituents wanted. And while they did a poll, Goucher did a poll, and the policy was exceptionally popular, I still believe that uh, if you look at various counties, people like yourself, school board members, they are not happy with this. Parents are not happy with this decision. People who, like myself, advocate and, and compel people to see that local control is the best type of control for our school systems, and individual counties should have that basic baseline control over their school calendars, they are unhappy about the governor's action. And look, well, I, I disagree – you know, I was just going to say, this, if you think about it, if you look at the calendars across the state, only one or two calendars actually started after Labor Day, and one of them was Ocean City. So if that was the way school systems thought the best way to run their calendar would be, they would have done it that way. And uh, I think that's you know, sort of your evidence right there. But I interrupted. Go ahead. No, no. And, and look at Garrett County as well, who um, much of their – their industry is based on tourism and travel mm-hmm. and down in, um, and, and, and of course down in ocean city and in that mm-hmm. County, I think it's Wooster County, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, in fact, I saw a post, it was funny on Facebook, delegate Ariana Kelly from district 16, I guess apparently took her daughter down to ocean city last week and they were having a, a dinner or a lunch or something, and they, she said, you know, our kids should be in school. Ocean City is a ghost town right now, and the whole impetus behind the idea of moving students to start school after Labor Day was this economic engine, this impact that people would spend more money in Maryland um, and boost our economy. So I think that's yet to be seen, Jill. I don't know. We'd have to do a study and find out if um, well, that's what I would is... really like to see, Ryan. I, I totally agree. I would like to see the data after this happens because um, Governor Hogan threw around some numbers when he did this legislation about what an economic impact would be. I would like to see what that economic impact is and how much of that money is being reinvested into education. And uh, because I think that there's, of course, no better investment we can make than in our schools. Yeah, I I 100% agree. So look, um Jill, the the last school school year was met with some mm-hmm. challenges here in Montgomery County and I believe it was on Thursday 
a security report that was commissioned, uh, was released, um, and it stemmed from the reported rape at Rockville High School. And you and I went into depth about this, and we had a great discussion. And um, earlier this year, uh, Councilmember George Levenfall of the Montgomery County Council, he joined my show, and we had a conversation about the facts and the and. At first, we understand many parents, including ourselves, Kim and I, were very disturbed by what we saw. But and we had to put our emotions aside and say, well, what has happened and what has been reported is especially horrifying and disgusting and sickening. We need to allow the facts to present themselves before we rush to any brash judgments. And we were guilty of that. And we had to take a step back. And I had to say to myself, Ryan, you know, as a journalist, as a parent, as somebody who is part of the community voice with doing this show and writing the blog, I need to moderate myself and put my emotions aside and get all the facts straight. And so, Jill, as it turned out, those boys were never charged. They, they did right. not have enough evidence, um, according to local police. And it, and it turns out that there was an entirely different narrative at play that was, was happening. And then it, it brought out Real, it really brought out a lot of ugliness. That incident was really a, a a sad time for our community, based upon some of the reactions by community members. They wanted to turn it into an immigration discussion, um, but I do believe that the report um, that was released should shed some light on what we can do as a school system to ensure that our kids are safe. So could you talk a little bit about that report? Absolutely. And I think that's the good that can come out of the bad. Um, And I agree with you. It was a very difficult, difficult time, not just for the community, but especially for the students that were involved, for the school, uh, Rockville High School, for all of our schools, because the that attention, that media attention led to threats of students, it led to threats of people in our office, it led to threats that were phoned into our schools. Uh, It really took a toll on us. And, uh, you know, something to be aware of is in the previous school year we had 10 hate instances. In this last year, we had close to 50 at least hate instances um, in our schools. And this is something that we all need to be conscious of, how when we jump to conclusions, we can go down a very dark path. And we really have to think about what kind of community we want here in Montgomery County. And um, But back to the report, 30 recommendations based on everything from security cameras to staff training. And uh, the report that was given at the board table, one thing they mentioned in particular is that more than anything else, more than the 5,500 cameras that we've installed in our high schools and middle schools and our 800 buses that are also outfitted with cameras and our security staff training and all of that is the relationship that our staff have with our students. We get serious incident reports every day from across our county, and many times what the information that we get is reported to us by students who are concerned about other students and report to staff within the building. Our school resource officers have very good relationships uh, with our students so that they can be comfortable 
reporting, things that they find concerning or suspicious. And that trusting relationship is the most important way that we can keep our schools safe. And uh, at the and that and that's the bottom line. But we will you certainly um, we're moving forward with these recommendations and you know a lot of recommendations that we get in our county maker school system better cost money and there's always budget implications. Um, but uh, our superintendent set aside one and a half million dollars for security upgrades in June for our high schools and all kinds of things from adding cameras to cover blind spots and stairwells and areas outside of school buildings and, and portables and um, developing strategies around where Cameras should be placed in student access in different parts of the building, passive and non-passive uh, design implementation things. So, you know, and strengthen our partnerships with police and other agencies. All that is a really important piece of keeping our kids safe. Safety is, our, is absolutely imperative in our school I, system. We want to have safe places where our kids can learn and grow. Well, that's, of course, the number one concern among parents. They... They entrust Montgomery County Public Schools to ensure their children's safety when they walk inside of that door. And if they're not safety, if they're not, if those kids aren't safe, as soon as they walk through that door and there is some sort of insecurity that is permeating any school system uh, in Montgomery County Public Schools, look, the largest school system in the state of Maryland, then we as a community, you as a board of education, our superintendent, our operating officers, Dr. Smith's st uh, staff, all of us, state leaders, uh, Governor Hogan, Lieutenant Governor uh, uh, Rutherford, we all have to get together and figure out that million-dollar question. And it's going to take a lot, and parents need to be reassured. And I want to move quickly to another topic. You mentioned mm -hmm. Dr. Smith. Some parents mm -hmm. are are griping about this increase in his salary. Is it justified, Jill? Do you think he deserves more money? Well, I think that you can go online, and I believe it's in our board docs on MCPS, to see how much superintendents are making in other districts of our mm -hmm. size. And uh, we... The superintendent came in um, asking for a much lower salary, which was, uh, I think, certainly appreciated. Wherever we can save money is, is good, but I think he came in and, you know, wanted to prove himself first. And he has moved forward on a number of really challenging issues where he's shown to us that he doesn't just have the knowledge and the philosophy that we need, but he knows how to implement and operationalize. And um, so it wasn't uh, the superintendent that asked for the salary increase. The president of our board looked at uh, superintendents of other similar school districts and recommended to us that we raise his salary to be competitive with other superintendents uh, in our uh, in our state and in other places as well. And um, I have been thrilled with a number of steps that he's taken that I think are really important things that our community members have been asking about for a long time. Putting into action words 
And what I mentioned was this vocational training. Many people have been saying for a long time, not everybody goes to college. Not everybody goes to college right away. How are we preparing our kids for a living wage? We're going to be reporting on that at our September 12th board meeting. The mm-hmm. safety and security, bumping up safety and security. Child abuse and neglect is um, a something that school systems across the country are looking at, especially in this area where there have been different instances. He is the first one to implement training for all staff around child abuse and neglect, which has led to reporting, as you are probably well aware, most sure. of the child abuse and neglect happens um, between um, with friends of family, family members. So um, doing the training for staff is not just for to keep kids safe when they're in school, but also to keep, keep kids safe when they are home. We are also doing training. Um, we're also doing curriculum, uh, age-appropriate curriculum from K all the way up, age-appropriate curriculum on safe touch, what that means um, when touch is uncomfortable, what that means, and giving kids the ability to put into words when things make them uncomfortable, which is really important to educate kids around this so that they can report themselves and empowering them to, to do that. This, this can make a huge difference. This is a very serious issue that we're continuing to work on in many different ways, and I really want to thank our community partners, um, both our uh, parents, our advocates, as well as our police, our um, district attorney's office, who've been wonderful partners in this, and this is something that we can continually will need to improve on going into the future and find new ways to keep our kids safe. So um, that was a huge one. Diversifying our workforce is a big issue for him as well, uh, that he's been working on different strategies. Uh, More than anything else, accountability for all kids. Um, He's been able to uh, put together the accountability structures that we need to look at all kids and how they're doing demographic groups at all of our schools and see where are we being successful with what groups of kids and what's helping them to be successful and how can we spread those strategies to other schools and which programs are working and which programs aren't working. That's all just extremely important data. So he's been really, really busy, um, very, we have a very positive evaluation of his work, and I think that uh, he, he was working all the time, every day, for the kids and our staff in Montgomery County. Yeah, I mean, you guys bumped him from 275 to 290, and mm-hmm. if you do look around at other comparable school districts, and it, we're one of the largest school districts in the country, mm-hmm. so uh, it, it, it's definitely within that salary range. It is comparable. It is fair. Some people would question why do these, why do superintendents make so much money? And here's my response: the response is is that they're basically man. How, how much is our operating budget in um, in Montgomery County, Jill? It's over a billion dollars, right? Yeah. Oh it, yeah. <laughs> so you you know yeah. take take a major company and uh, and then hire uh, a chief executive officer and essentially Jack Smith in in other words is the chief executive officer of Montgomery County Public Schools. He's in chop of yeah. he's in charge of all the operational responsibilities within the school system making sure I mean he has a very tough 
job. It's not easy. There's there's over a hundred thousand kids inside of our school system, and he's in charge of that. Our teachers making sure that the curriculum is set. It's a lot of work. So, to people who gripe about his salary, there's a lot that people do not see behind the scenes that would justify that fifteen thousand dollar bump. And so. I've battled other parents and teachers and people who have said, oh, you know, here's another here's another salary increase for the guy at the top. And then, you know, here are teachers not getting that um, that step increase. So, uh, you well, know, here's it's the thing, and, and I, to- I totally hear that. And there's just, just a couple of points. And I, and I just want to validate what you said. First of all, our ba- budget is about two point. Four six billion dollars for 2017. So it's it's quite a large budget. As you mentioned, we do have a huge school system. We're the 17th largest school system out of about 15,000 school systems in the country, and one of the most highly rated school systems. We have about 160,000 students that he's responsible for. And I, one of my colleagues actually did the math and said it came to about a dollar fifty-eight per student that he gets paid. <laughs> Yeah. So he has a huge responsibility um, uh, for our school system, and we do want him to, of course, do his best work, which he is doing. We have twenty over 23,000 employees in MCPS. I think we're the second largest employer. When you talk about CEOs of corporations, as the second largest employer in the state of Maryland, I believe Giant is number one. Um, oh. I don't know how much the CEO of Giant is making, <laughs> but um, it's a pretty, it is a pretty big responsibility and a pretty big job. And then as far as with our staff, I certainly understand because our staff works incredibly hard. Their, la- their um, uh, last increase averaged out to be about 5%, which is equivalent to what the superintendent is getting. Um, can, I, can I ask you a personal yeah, question about uh, salary here? How much do Board of Education members in Montgomery County make per year? We make $25,000. So, I I mean, that's – look, that's that's nothing. It's it's real – it's – okay. I know I'm going to get some blowback for saying that that's not – because that is a a lot for some families, and Mm -hmm. that is what some families are are living off, sadly – in our country. But what I want to say is that you guys on the board of education pretty much have a full-time job doing this. This is, mm-hmm. this is a full-time job and the amount of work, the amount of policy discussions that you have meetings. I, I can't imagine Jill, that you would spend any less than 40 hours a week on board of education business. I, um, well, thank you for recognizing that. We well, I do. are I mean, uh, very true. dedicated. <laughs> we do are all over the county. And if you look at other large school systems, board salaries, LA school board salaries actually double to $125,000 a year. Um, so <laughs> so uh, we, we certainly are not among the highest, I can tell you that. Um, but uh, we are servants to our community and um, obviously we're not doing it for the money we really want to make a difference we have a passion for uh, helping our kids to be as successful as they can in the, in our county and what so do I appreciate you, uh, you uh, yeah, knowing I, that well it's important because you I, I have a lot of close friends 
around the state who are members of board of educations. I, I know members of the state board of education. I know people from where I grew up in Washington County who are on the board of education. Um, mm-hmm. I know that people down at, um, at May, the, the, the amount of time that Board of Education mm-hmm. members in May Maryland. Is the Maryland Association of Board of Education. Yeah. yeah it, it, and yes. So, and the association mm-hmm. is a fantastic organization, is a central mm-hmm. organizing unit for all boards of education. I know how much time and dedication that these folks spend and oftentimes spend out of, it ends up being out of their own pocket, uh, going to conventions, to learning policy, mm-hmm. to meeting with state officials to setting the calendars to the just the meetings themselves is, is really nothing. It's behind the scenes meeting with parents and constituents and Jill, you have your hands full. We know that. And so um, I just want to say to anybody who gripes about board of education members making $25,000 before you do so, make sure that you at least have a conversation with a board of education member to learn the massive responsibilities that you have and you are so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that for that particular topic. Um, it just bothers me when people say, Oh, they, they make way too much money and they have no, you know, they really don't understand the incredible well, amount of work that you guys do. And I certainly appreciate that. I mean, to be honest, I would love, and this comes from the state actually as a state legislated salary, and I would honestly love for an increase, not just for me personally, because that would be nice, but um, it, it really blocks out a lot of people from running for the Board of Education because they can't afford to live on $25,000 per year. And I mean, I could I would really... Right. It's, I would really love that. I'm fortunate that my husband makes a good, a decent salary. He also works for a nonprofit as well. Mm-hmm. But um, I think if we did increase the salary as they have in other areas, other people, it would open up the possibilities of other people who might be more representative of the diversity of our county uh, to be able to run for this office so that it could be a living wage for them. So sure. that's something sure. to consider in the future. So tell us what you expect to take on this calendar year. What are some of the big ticket items that the Board of Education will be tackling in the next few months? Well, as I said, the September 12th will be our update on our career and technical education um, programming, and that's something that I personally am really looking forward to. Um, As I said, that our superintendent is – laser focused on all of our students being able to earn a living wage when they graduate from our high school. Uh, We have many, many, many students who go on to um, very competitive colleges, institutions, which is wonderful, but that's not for everybody. Uh, One thing that we talk about a lot in Montgomery County is the mental health of our students. And that's something that I'm hoping that will get onto the agenda this year, something that we've talked about as we are going to be agenda setting for the year. Uh, Kids are experiencing more depression and more anxiety than ever before, not just in Montgomery County, but across the country. And uh, that balance that I was talking about earlier, I think is really important. Uh, Social-emotional learning is 
um, part of our one of our values for our school system. I'd like to put more meat behind that all the way through from kindergarten through high school because social, social emotional learning gives you the capacity to understand uh, yourself, how you feel, how you manage yourself in the world, and better prepare you to take on the challenges of the world. So that's something that I would like to see as more of a focus, mm-hmm. and um, I, I believe that we will be talking more about. Good, good. Um, when, do, when is the time that the school board works the budget and discusses um, all the elements that are representative of the budget, what, what point of the year does that occur? That's already starting. We're already starting to have those conversations. It's like um, on my colleague, Pat O'Neill, says, like uh, painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Just when you've gotten to this one side and you think you've finished, you have to start painting all over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is a big budget, and um, – we uh, have to be paying attention to what our growing needs are and how we meet those needs and what we're doing that is best meeting those needs. And um, that dissection of our budget is happening with our superintendent right now, um, and he'll be reporting back uh, on that. So it's, you know, where are we getting the biggest bang for our buck um, and how are we best supporting staff to meet the needs of our kids? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one thing is um, that you're probably aware of, I'm sure, is that the demographics of our school system have changed dramatically over the years. And the largest cohort that we have right now is Hispanic in Montgomery County, and uh, we have a large um, English language learner uh population. We also, as I mentioned, we have over 40% of our kids have been um, lived in poverty at some point. And uh, we need to make sure that all of our kids are being successful in our schools. And uh, they take, and that takes a spectrum of different kinds of support. And um, so that's, you know, that's the kind of analysis that's happening right now. Jill, I, my goal is a a journalist and a blogger in Montgomery County has I've I've so wanted to invest m- much more of my time covering education issues and I think we're bereft of in Montgomery County especially of a lack of coverage on these m- important day-to-day education issues dealings with the board of education your interactions mm-hmm. with Montgomery County Council and look Bethesda Beat does a great job they're they're yeah, fantastic they really do. They're, mm-hmm. they're really stepping up, and they have, they, they have excellent reporters, and I, I want to give them major credit for what they do. And if I had the time, Jill, if I had 20 hours in the day to dedicate to uh, blogging and these types of shows, these podcasts, um, I think that I could shed light more on the important work that the school system is doing. Um, but I can't, and I'm, I'm going to try my best to do this, and it's going to be a, a feat that I'm, I'm working at, but that's why we're having these conversations where people can, can easily listen, parents can listen in, digest this podcast, and listen on the go, and, and they can listen when they're stuck in traffic on 270 or 495. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and, but there's another voice in the community that has taken the lead on presenting clearly a narrative. And it's called the Parents Coalition of Montgomery mm-hmm. County, Maryland. And mm-hmm. you can find they have a blog and everything. So, and I read this stuff frequently. But there's there's 
clearly an agenda here. And while it's definitely a parent organization and they present day-to-day information of what happens inside the school system, they seem to have some sort of beef with the school system in some way. And I'm trying to figure out all the angles, but is this a good source of news for parents to read to get the full picture of what's happening inside of MCPS? Well, I don't want to make a judgment about um, that particular organization. I think that they consider themselves a watchdog group, and um, they can be highly critical uh, and distrustful of the school system or particular Mm -hmm. people within the school system. And I understand that. we have, uh, like many huge institutions, have made mistakes along the way, and I think that uh, people remember, you know, when we've made mistakes, when we haven't done things the wrong way, and they um, have issues with that, which I, which I certainly understand. All I can promise is that I'm doing the best job I can. Our superintendent is job, doing the best job he can to right. make things better, and uh, that's what I hope that all of our groups in our county, watchdog or not, will be focused on is how can I be a good partner in making sure that we get the best outcomes for our kids? I don't mind people pointing out our warts or our mistakes. Um, If their intention is that by pointing out these mistakes or uh, these warts, as it were, that they want to be vested in us becoming a better school system and meeting the needs of all kids. That, to me, is the bottom line. Um, sometimes MCPS in the past has put on a big, shiny face, and we haven't really told the whole picture. And I think the superintendent is very focused on let's be transparent. Let's talk about Let's put it all out there and um, because it's the only way that we're going to have the investment from the community that we need to um, to work work in the best way for all of our kids. Um, I just wanted to mention that we've got 960 new teachers and 108, 138 uh, new supporting service employees in our county. And um, something I mentioned, you had brought up about the hate that came out, and I said about the hate acts, but we have, not only do we have an incredibly uh, diverse student body, um, which I mentioned that Hispanic was our largest cohort. We have kids, of course, coming from around the world um, speaking about, I think, 160 languages. And our new staff are diverse as well, representing 17 countries, 41 states, and uh, a couple hundred that speak 26 other languages besides English. And I think that is one of the biggest strengths in Montgomery County is our diversity. And that's the thing that I'm most excited about that we continue to embrace and celebrate in our school system. So I'm glad you brought up the earlier things, but you're going to bring up the positive part of that. There's there's many positive things that happen, and look, there's people that are going to take you guys to task. It's a it's a large school system, and bad things are bound to happen. And if we, if parents and community leaders and the school system like yourself can 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 figure out these major major pressing problems, then you know I bad things are going to happen. And I know that look. 
this the lawsuit about the Gaithersburg High School uh, student um, who passed away back in 2015. I mean, this is a horrible thing. It's awful. This mm-hmm. this young girl. I, I mean, I it, it's even hard to talk about as a you you know mm-hmm. as well as I as a mm-hmm. parent. I mean, this is this is a student who lost her life and then. You know, as while inside of under the care of Montgomery County Public Schools, and now the school system's being sued, and it's a whole thing. It's just the whole around. The whole thing is terrible, and I know that you're probably limited in what you can comment on, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, it's 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 a sad story, and I know that there's a lawsuit that has been. Um, and filed, and I'm just I'm just scrolling through this Bethesda Beat article, mm-hmm. um, and I just I, I hope that you know no, nothing will ever bring this young girl back, and I, I'm I just hate though to see um, what the parents are going through, but also the school system. I'm sure you know this this is the worst possible thing that could happen inside of the school system is to lose a student on your on your watch and. I know that this has probably affected school board members and the superintendent and several people inside the school system irreparably. And it's just, it's, it's difficult. And I know that you guys are dealing with it. I hope so. I know that parents need well, to know that you're dealing with this. Well, any, anything that happens to our kids in our school, there are babies. And um, I, right. can, uh, yeah, I can't talk specifically about this incident, but my kids, uh, my, like I say, my daughter just graduated from NCPS. My son is in high school in NCPS right now. Um, a couple of our other board members have kids in our schools. And as one of our board members says, it's like we have 160,000 kids, each of us. And anything that happens to any of our kids, whenever we read a serious incident report from something happening, whether it's a child harming him or herself or um, making bad choices around drugs or alcohol or getting in a fight or something more tragic happening inside of our school buildings. It's, it's very, very painful. And all we can do is seek to uh, make sure any of those things that have happened, any of those tragic situations don't happen again. And as I said, um, I regret anything that happened uh, before, you know, I was on the board before his superintendent was here. Um, I know that, you know, it was before my time, but um, I don't, you know, I I do think when there have been things that have been done in the past that um, uh, I think that we do have to feel like bad, Bad decisions can be made, and um, I regret anybody that has suffered from any decisions, any bad decisions um, in our school system, because I can't even imagine if any of these things happened to my kids. So, uh, you know, when we when we get emails that say, well, I wish this had happened to your kid or whatever, That's which terrible. happened around That's the world, terrible. It's, it really is extraordinarily painful it's it, it really is so yeah i mean that's that's all i'll say and all i know is you know i can just speak for myself personally i'm working as hard as i can I, to try and learn from anything everybody throws my way uh to try and make our school better school better for all kids no i know i know jill i know you're <laughs> i know you're working very hard 
And so I, you know, you're, you're doing this interview here on a, a Sunday night when you could rather be watching Game of Thrones. And uh, <laughs> so. I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I did leave a dinner party. So. Oh, even better. So, okay. Even, even better. Yeah. So, um, well, let me ask you this question, and this is a little bit off topic, but so um, everybody kind of wants to know: are you are you are you running for anything else other than school board? <laughs> uh, I, well, at this point, um, you know, my passion is our kids, and I really think that is the absolute best investment I can make with my time yeah. is for children, and I don't, I, I um. And it seems to me that that most direct connection is that I can make it through our Board of Education. And I know other people have mentioned other offices, which I really appreciate. Um, yeah, me including. I said, I, I told everybody, I said, <laughs> Joe Ortman Faust is, is one of my favorite school board members, you and Rebecca. I, and I, I love you guys to death. And, and Shebra, she's doing a great job. And so mm-hmm. I told everybody, I said, hey, listen. Jill Ortman Fowl should go out tomorrow and announce that she's running for uh, for county for county council at large, and she could become like one of the forty five that are running. But you know, if <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just keeps well, adding I really every day. I that. I'm telling you. I mean, I mean, new... I keep, well, <laughs> I know it's just, the list keeps growing, but I do. I really appreciate everybody's support, and you know, if 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 at this point, nobody has told me how I could make a bigger, bigger difference for kids um, being on the county council. I, I'll continue to listen. Everybody says, don't make up your mind yet and continue to listen. So I'm continuing to listen. But right now, my focus is on the best job I can during the four years that I'm on the Board of Education, and, and we'll see what happens next. That's, that's good. And it's not one of those... It's not one of those BS political answers where people, you know, when you say, well, I have the door open and I'm doing and it's no like (laughs) this is what you're doing. This is what Joe Ortman Faust just said. And it's not breaking news or anything, but I appreciate it because we need your voice on the Board of Education. We do. We need you, Joe. We need you to keep, keep working hard for our kids and making sure that they're getting the best possible education. And then they're when they graduate that. You know, they they leave the nest and they go off into the real world, equipped with the life skills, with the education to to be successful, whether it be in a career or be in the military, whether it be in college. Um, and so we have or a, hopefully they come back and, and become teachers in MCPS, which is what we, <laughs> we that's, are that's right. Eighty one of our new teachers are MCPS graduates, which I'm thrilled about. Oh, I love it. Um, because we graduate extraordinarily extraordinary young adults and mm-hmm. we love for them to come back and work for us. Yeah, I I think it's great. I would I'm so happy with Montgomery County Public Schools. Like I said, the kids will be at Wooten High School, and it really, it becomes a community. And I, I went to a small I, – I grew up in a small town in, in Washington County, and I went to Williamsport High School. And look, every night – every Friday night was football games, band competitions. We were one big family. That's – it's our community, and that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. School systems become the central portion of our community. And let me tell you something. You know Kim. You know me. Never underestimate moms. Never underestimate the power oh, yeah. of what moms can accomplish and dads. But mm-hmm. I'm saying this because uh, Kimber- Kimberly is just one heck of a mom who is 
so invested in the kids' education um, in their school system, and I am as well. And she really is. This is just a hundred percent our priority when we get home on school nights. It's it's dinner, it's homework, it's reviewing homework, it's going over the next day. And that's what's important. They have that reinforcement. And look, we know that mm-hmm. not all kids in Montgomery County Public Schools have that. And that's and that's a shame. And I know you folks are working to ensure that that achievement gap is filled. Not all students will have the same access to pre-kindergarten as our kids did. They won't have ac- access to, um, look, they went to a Geneva Day school. That's We were lucky. We were blessed. We were fortunate. But School systems have a job to do, and that's to make sure that every student receives an equitable, across-the-board education opportunity to be successful in life. And that's why I value the public school system so much. And if you want to send your kids to private school, that's, that's a choice that you have to make. Mm-hmm. But here in Montgomery County, we trust our public schools. We trust our teachers. And, and if anything ever happens to go wrong, we know, where to talk, we know who to talk to. We know how to get solutions. I can tell you, Jill that we've had many questions with the school system and never once have we been turned away. Never once have we been turned down for a discussion, not one time. In fact, when that Rockville incident occurred earlier this year, um, we met, I believe it was with the deputy superintendent, um, Dr. Henry. Oh, I can't remember his last name. Um, yeah. Dr. Henry Johnson, chief of staff, Henry of John- superintendent, Dr. Johnson. Hmm? Yeah. He, he met with Kim and I in his office with, um, I believe it was his assistant or one of his colleagues. He sat there and talked to us for an hour. We talked about policy. We left feeling like Montgomery County Public Schools is on our side. And so if parents are listening, yes, you might have some issues. Yes, you're concerned about, quite frankly, important issues. But know that mm-hmm. you guys are fighting for us every single day. The school system, the school board members, you guys are out there, and that's what you're here for. And I I really appreciate you coming on and have this conversation with me tonight. Well, I really appreciate your partnership because that's what it really takes. We can just blow – we can go even farther and higher than we've ever gone before with the kind of commitment that you have to be a great partner um, with parents and groups across our county, organizations, companies. You know, that's the thing. If everybody is invested in our school system's success there, it's, it's really limitless what we can do for our kids. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, is that commitment to our school system is one of the reasons that um, we are one of the best school systems in the country. It's people who really care about making a difference, not just in their own kids' lives, but in the lives of other kids. So thank you for believing in our system and being a great partner, and we do want to be as responsive as we can. So I'm glad that you've had a good experience with that. So just to wrap up our conversation, Jill, if parents want to get involved in the school system – and it's not simply just showing up to PTA meetings or it's not only showing up to in Board of Education meetings. But let's say if parents don't have time to do that, but they still want to find out what is happening inside of their children's schools or at the Board of Education level, where can they go to find that information? 
Well, I would say, first of all, definitely reach out to your PTA. That's the first step. And also you reach out to your school's principal and find out um, ways that they can support the school on a broader level as far as our work on the Board of Education. They can get to the Board of Education's website on MCPS, and they can, all of our meetings are, um, not only are they shown live, but they're also videos so they can watch them back. They can look at our agendas and see what topics might be of interest to them. And like I say, they're videotaped so they can watch them on their own time for subjects um, and learn more about them. And I find, like I say, I find that people um, sometimes go off on social media about different topics without ever just doing a simple search on the SCPS website to yeah. see what our policy is or what we've done lately on that issue. And that's kind of discouraging because everybody, so many people do actually have access to the Internet now, and we have a lot of information on our website, just reams and reams of information about our policies and our work. And I, our, um, our public information office works very hard to update our website constantly with new information and the latest developments on policy and in our schools. So I really encourage people to go to our website and, and look up whatever they're interested in. And um, if they don't find what they're looking for, feel free to call our board office or our public information office to find out more. Joe, I really wish I had more time to talk to you about DACA because that's important to me and it's important to you oh, yeah. and it's been, it's been mm -hmm. hanging on my mind and as as I'm sure it's been on yours, that just before the show started, I I got a breaking news alert that Trump has decided to end DACA with a six-month delay, assuming that Congress oh. can fix this. Wow. I, it's it's hard because yeah. there's it's it's just like there's a constant onslaught against immigrants in this in in our country, and Montgomery County has been a a friend to to those immigrants and you know these kids these these daca kids these you know it's short for deferred action for childhood arrivals at no fault mm -hmm. of their own they were brought here and to to end that program and while i believe that the executive order was probably not the right way to go about doing it congress should act and congress should protect daca students so they can continue to live the American dream. They can continue to contribute to their communities. They're, they are part of our community. Um, these immigrants, we are going to work to protect them in the face of a Trump administration. And I will say that I will do whatever I can, even though if it's limited, to ensure that our immigrant students are welcomed and loved and appreciated here in Montgomery County. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We, this that that really means a lot. Um, our our immigrant students are among our most vulnerable. They're referred to as the dreamers, as you know, um, and uh, came here with their parents as minors, many very young ages, not even realizing that they were living in the country illegally. Um, we want them to complete their education. We want for them to be gainfully employed and be able to contribute to the economy. And um, there's different hoops that they have to jump to be able to get that DACA status as it is. And um, I think that um, this is really going to create a lot of disruption in our community, and, and that's very sad. It's very sad. <laughs> so, I, I know. Um, I know it is. And we're, 
people like you and you and I and many, many others in this community are going to go to bat for these kids. And uh, it, we, we might have a fight on our hands. I don't know where it's going to take us, Jill. I don't know what's going to happen. But don't ever underestimate, like I said, don't ever underestimate moms. Don't ever underestimate Montgomery County folks um, because we are charged up and we are ready to go. And if it comes down to it, we want to ensure that every student has an equal opportunity to education in this country because we know that is the pathway out of poverty. That is the pathway out of uh, it's, it's the pathway towards success to all facets of our life. And education doesn't stop at from K to 12 or even college. I'm constantly learning every single day. And to protect these students, like Absolutely. you said, the and, and, and they're teaching in our public schools. We have teachers in our public schools. I, you know, I'm not going to say about Montgomery County. I don't know about Montgomery County, but just natural, uh, nationally um, that um, through DACA, uh, there's a national teaching teacher shortage in our country. And uh, for anybody who's contributing to the education of other students and to our economy, I mean, this is, this is pretty huge. So we'll see what happens next. Okay. Well, Jill? You're a fighter. You're a good friend of mine. I really appreciate it. Um, you, you came on at the last minute, um, and uh, I, I appreciate, I appreciate everything that you do and the the way that you do it. And you've been a good friend of mine for for some time now. Keep up the fight. Keep working for those kids. And uh, look, I we. You and I aren't going to figure out all the world's ails here on a Sunday night, but I can tell you what we're going to keep working hard. So. Well, thank you, Ryan, and thank you so much for having me and for your commitment to our community. Um, I really and your and your friendship as well. And I'm I'm happy to have had this time with you. Thank you for the invitation. You bet. And uh, hey, good luck on Tuesday with all those kids going back to school. (laughs) Yes, very exciting. All right, good luck with the kids. (laughs) All right, take it easy, Jill. Thanks so much, and have a great night. Bye bye. You too. All right, folks, Joe Ortman Fowl, school board member here in Montgomery County, had a great discussion, talked about a little bit of policy, what's happening with their school calendar. She talked about Jack Smith's salary increase. We talked uh, some of the more tense issues that, is, that have occurred over the last uh, couple of uh, months or in the last year or so. Um, next thing is I'm going to play an interview that was pre-recorded from yesterday with Montgomery County Councilman Hans Reamer, and we talked about the Purple Line. So here's that interview. So let's just get started here on the Purple Line. Um, So, Councilman, you've been pushing for this public transit project for quite some time. Um, Many people who don't live in Montgomery County may not know what the Purple Line is or what it's supposed to do. So let's talk about that. What is the Purple Line, and what is it supposed to do for Montgomery County folks? Terrific. It's a... uh major transportation project that is going to provide a great way to get kind of across the county rather than down, you know, north and south, but kind of across the county uh, for the estimates are 50 to 70,000 people a day. And one of the benefits of it is it connects the different uh, spurs of the red line. You know, we have the two ends of the red line coming up into the county, but nothing going in between. And our whole major transportation networks, uh, you know, 270, the red line were designed to get people in and out of the core. 
And more and more, we need ways for people to get around the county, inside the county, inside the region. So what this does is it it starts all the way down in New Carrollton, where the Amtrak is, and there's major employment down there. And it kind of has a crescent across uh, the region through Prince George's County into Silver Spring and then into Bethesda. So some of the major nodes along it are the University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. Now will be a quick, smooth, you know, ride to the University of Maryland from Silver Spring, from Bethesda. Um, downtown Silver Spring, of course, you know, one of our cultural capitals, job center, Bethesda, which is really the crown jewel of our economic engines. And uh, NIH, you know, is there, of course. So it's just going to bring everything closer. That's really what it does. It brings housing closer to jobs. And this will make it more possible for people to find an affordable place to live that's still a reasonably quick trip to their job. Um, Yeah. And it opens up a lot of possibilities for people. So it's a mega project. It's a multi-billion dollar project. The county's paying a fair share of it, but it's most of the money comes from the federal and the state governments. Councilman, there there hasn't always been a collective support behind this project, so I want to talk about the the genesis of how it got started, the background, um, and there's been some controversy around the project. In fact, so much so that it was the, this light rail project um, has been finally released from legal limbo. Can you speak to that and tell us a little bit about the history of the project getting started and then the incremental steps forward to where we are today? I'd love to tell a story. So, you know, (laughs) years and years ago, 100 years ago, uh, there was a train track, you know, that, that came up through Silver Spring and over to Bethesda. And there was a lot of industrial uses uh, on that train route. And the that continued all the way up into the 50s and 60s, and then it, it shut down, I think, in the 60s, maybe early 70s. Um, but the track remained. CSX you know, uh, owned it, and they abandoned it. And a guy named Harry Sanders and some friends of his came up with the idea of, why don't we purchase that right away, that abandoned track, rather than letting it just you know, sit there? Uh, why don't we purchase it and use the the transportation corridor for a trolley, uh, you know, a train that would run between Silver Spring and Bethesda. So that was like 1983, 84, uh, more than 30 years ago. And he started to talk about this. You know, it was a very grass, much of a grassroots organizing process. And uh, governors started to get interested and elected officials started to get interested. But there was a lot of controversy because that track went through the Columbia Country Club. And for years, all through the late 80s, into the 90s, the Chevy Chase Columbia Country Club crowd was very influential in Montgomery County politics. And elected officials from that area were never supportive of the Purple Line. And in fact, really prevented the line from getting traction as a major state you know, federal priority. So it was a subject of a lot of argument and battles. But over time, you know, as the population centers in the rest of the county emerged, you know, Silver Spring 
rows and North Bethesda rows and Germantown and Gaithersburg rows, you know, the, the, the influence of that small community around the, the golf course diminished and more and more support began to emerge for it. So, you know, let's see, fast forward to the Duncan administration, not terribly favorable towards it. The Ehrlich administration, right. uh, governor, not terribly favorable towards it. You know, it, it had life and it, it was removed from the priorities list many times. Um, after building the ICC, O'Malley got behind it and started to really kind of orchestrate it. And Anthony Brown was put in charge of really developing it. And they came up with the idea of making it a public-private partnership, uh, which has turned out to be, I think, an essential element of why the Trump administration agreed to fund it. Yeah. Nevertheless, um, the gas tax was raised several years ago in the Maryland legislature as part of a transportation funding package. And the explicit you know, reason to raise the gas tax was to fund a long list of transportation projects in the state, all over the state. And the Purple Line was one of the big projects that was going to get funded. So uh, after years and years and years and hundreds of millions of dollars spent on engineering and planning and design, we finally got the money together to go ask the federal government to pay for its share. And that's, you know, you can't ask the federal government to pay for its share unless you've got your share. That's the way the process works. So we raised the gas tax, went to the federal government, had, you know, their strong support in the Obama administration and, you know, expected everything to kind of roll forward. But then, of course, Anthony Brown lost. And during the campaign, I actually organized a big event, uh, you know, in support of the Brown campaign, in support of the Purple Line. And, you know, we were saying, Anthony Brown's a champion for the Purple Line. We don't really know where Larry Hogan stands. And in response to the attention that the event received, Larry Hogan made comments about the Purple Line, and they were very circumspect. You know, he thought it might not be affordable. You know, he thought it might not be desirable. So we became very concerned that, you know, Governor Hogan was not going to back it, but we weren't sure, you know. We, we, we knew he could express reservations without necessarily sure. making a decision. Um, after he won, that was one of the immediate flashpoints was, is the governor going to continue? We'll see where he comes down. So um, meanwhile, after Donald Trump won, initially um, this Purple Line was put on his list of 50 transportation projects. The country going, create jobs. You know, infrastructure is a big priority for him. So we thought that would be, you know, that's promising. But then when he submitted his budget, his first budget, he eviscerated all funding for all transit projects. And he said, we won't spend a penny that hasn't already been promised. So, you know, it, it was in limbo with, with uh, the state government. It was in limbo with the federal government. And then, you know, to our great delight, uh, Governor Hogan really got behind the Purple Line, and he started for it. He, he did that after cutting the budget for it. You know, he felt it was too expensive. He pushed down more expenses to the county, and he cut, the, cut a lot of the budget. But, you know, it's fine. We'll work with it. And um, then with, the, with, you know, Governor Hogan strongly in favor of it, the focus turned to the federal government. And we were just about to sign – the funding agreement in January, um, 
when, uh, and of course this was still Obama administration, but we were just about mm-hmm. to sign the, uh, it was during the transition, but um, just about to sign the funding agreement, which would give us $900 million from the federal government, when a, you know, a lawsuit had been filed challenging very, anything that they could challenge. One of the things that they were challenging was whether the line would jeopardize a, uh, you know, a crustacean that they didn't, they couldn't prove lived in Rock Creek what they thought might theoretically live in Rock Creek. And they, you know, the, this judge entertained this lawsuit, this really spurious lawsuit, and then basically put the whole project on hold and um, we lost the full funding grant agreement. So we went from being, you know, days away from construction, January 2017, you know, with $900 million on the way, to, you know, thrown into chaos, not sure where the Trump administration will come down now that, you know, it's completely their decision and it's dragging out in court. So um, spent a lot of the year fighting it out, you know, the legal process. And after a while, I began to realize that the judge, you know, quite possibly could be intentionally trying to run the the timeline out on the project, you know, that he was, he seemed to many of us seemed to be very hostile to the project and probably, you know, has not liked it personally. Um, and so uh, we started to become more outspoken about the need for the judge to make a decision so that we can challenge that decision, right. you know, appeal that right. decision. And so finally, you know, the judge bowed to the inevitable issued a decision, we appealed it, and the appeals court immediately just rebuked the judge and said, this is, you know, this project can move forward. We'll continue to address the legal challenge to it, but the project can move forward. So, you know, that, uh, that was maybe a month ago. And um, now, uh, you know, the last piece of the puzzle was getting back to signing that full funding agreement. So, very happy. Governor Hogan, you know, reached out, pressed hard with USDOT, Secretary Lane Chow responded favorably and uh, to our great, you know, ex- excitement. Last week, we had a ceremony to sign the full funding grant agreement, which will release hundreds of million, $300 million initially, and then the rest to follow as construction begins um, to start construction. So construction is starting. Oh, that's great. Um, how many stations is this going to serve um, from New Carrollton? Um, I think it's Beth- uh, Spring to New Carrollton. That's right. Well, so first of all, anyone who wants background about it, uh, there's a terrific website, uh, Maryland Purple Line. You know that the state has put together. It's a state project. You know, this is it's it, it, it's it's interesting. All the the layers or the dimensions here, but it's not a metro project. So WMATA does not own this line. They will not operate this line. The state of Maryland decided not to allow WMATA, you know, not to make this a WMATA project. Uh, that might so be a the good state thing. Contained, you know, uh, it probably is. It's not caught up in all the WMATA drama right now. And then the state decided to make it a public-private partnership. So rather than just build it and run it like, you know, a normal project, uh, the state bid it out and selected from a number of competing bids. There's a 
private company consortium that you know came back and said, here's how much it's going to cost us to build it, here's how much it's going to cost us to own it and operate it for 30 years. So if you give us, you know, you state of Maryland give us, you know, th- this amount of dollars every year, we will operate it based on these terms of service. And so the state accepted that. And so it's it's actually being built and run by a private company, you know, even though Maryland retains underlying ownership. So um, there's a Maryland Purple Line website that has lots of details. I believe it's 14 stops. Um, you know, in Montgomery County, we've got starting Bethesda. It integrates into the Red Line station in downtown Bethesda. Um, and then the next stop is Chevy Chase Lakes. Uh, right on uh, Connecticut Avenue there, and then um, Littonsville, and then downtown Silver Spring. So we have been doing, and then on, you know, Long Branch, on, you know, the, the library in Silver Spring, on to Long Branch, and then over towards University of Maryland and New Carroll. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work to plan for the housing that can come when we have the new transportation infrastructure. So uh, we're very excited there's going to be you know, thousands of new housing units that will be created within walking distance of these stations, which will, you know, that, that'll be a real boost to our economy here, having more housing opportunities. Yeah, and just to piggyback off the, the public-private partnership, I know that the state hired a firm by the name of Purple Line Transit Partners, and the construction-related firms are, it looks like Floor Lane and Trailer Brothers, and I, you know, there's, I was just reading up on it. The, this is the second public-private partnership in the country for a light rail project, the other being the right. Eagle Light Rail System in Denver. And right. did you and guys look at that when you, um, when you were c- kind of how that, the, the, the financing operated when you were looking at the Purple Line? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Denver project was definitely a model. Uh, you know, up till now, you've seen more public-private partnerships with uh, highway expansions. And we've got local examples here in the region, the Beltway in Virginia. You know, all, all the new lanes that were built with tolling, those are actually, uh, you know, with, with built with a public-private partnership model. So um, it's it's been standard in the highway construction sector, but not yet really adopted as much in um, transit. So the Denver model is there, but the Purple Line is a, uh, you know, it's a much bigger one. And, you know, it's very interesting how it works out. I mean, I would have been happy for the state to do it as a state project without having it been contracted out, but I think there certainly are advantages to having it contracted out. I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's not a simple issue, um, but the companies are going to be responsible for, you know, operation and maintenance and it it could be that that works out for the best that if it was left to the state that the state might you know under invest in maintenance and you know the way perhaps the way the metro has declined i don't think the state would do that but it's it's a risk so um you know we we expect that the private companies will meet our standards and if and if they don't the state always does have the right to take it back yeah do we have any idea yet how much the fares will cost you know, it, there may be an estimate of that. I'm not sure off the top of my head. Um, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, sorry, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sure it's, 
it, it will be hopefully it, it will need to be affordable, you know, and, and those questions are subject to Maryland, uh, you know, state review and approval and things like that. So I'm trying to get a good picture in my head of how this project is going to look. So my understanding is that the purple line, they're going to be cars. It's not going to resemble like a uh, like the metro, um, the, the the actual car, but rather it's going to be on a public street. And for 15 of its 16.2 miles, they're going to, there's going to be a dedicated lane separate from other vehicles. And this is going to allow the purple line to travel faster than other traffic and um, right. they're going to be they're going to operate in mixed traffic on Wayne Avenue Pamp, uh, Paint Branch Parkway and Ellen Road. So, councilman, um so it's going to be like a streetcar thing, right? I mean, it's good. it's kind of remind you of old-fashioned yeah. public transit. Yes and no. Yes and no. You know, it, it will it, it it won't be like metro. You know, metro has electrified railing and mm-hmm. fencing and you know, you can't get anywhere near it. This is a system that is designed to run in mixed traffic if necessary. Now, the key to public transportation is speed and reliability, and the key to speed and reliability is, you know, having your own lane. You know, it's traffic that is unpredictable. So we were fortunately able to get most of the line in a dedicated travel lane, and so it won't be held up by traffic. There are a few pinch points where the impact of creating a dedicated line were just too great. Too many houses would have had to come down, uh, too, much, too much opposition in the community. So at those particular points, Wayne Avenue and Silver Spring is a good example, you know, there isn't a dedicated lane for it. But most of the line has a dedicated line. Uh, most of the line has a dedicated lane. And then the cars – you know, they're going to be very smooth. I mean, a lot of people talk about, oh, why couldn't you just do this with buses? You really can't compare the quality of experience of a light rail car with a bus. You know, a light rail car accelerates very smoothly. It's on track. It doesn't have, you know, it's not bouncing. You know, there's no sudden stops. It's not in traffic for the most part. And so, you know, you can just, it's a much more enjoyable ride and uh, you know, it will, I don't, we haven't seen, if you go to, um, if you go to DC on eighth street, they have a streetcar. This will look different than that, but that's the best example. I think locally that we have. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see how it it will come about now. Councilman, there has been, I want to say some criticisms for the project from the up county region. I live in North Potomac, and um, there's some folks that are saying, well, how is this going to benefit up county given that we have an infrastructure problem, especially here on 270, mostly between Clarksburg and then the 495 split? So, how, I guess, what are some other infrastructure projects that are in the works that we can mitigate the the major traffic flow here on Interstate 270 from folks coming from Western Maryland and and back and forth to to work. Absolutely. Well, the Purple Line is certainly not Montgomery County's only transportation project. It's just sure. the current mega project, you know, that we are lining up. You know, the last one was the ICC, which of course served the Up County, uh, and the next one is the next one that we have more local influence over is the Corner City Transitway, 
um, as well as a number of higher speed bus projects. But the state, you know, we're, we're urging the state to work on 270 and the bridge to Fairfax. And, um, you know, the Purple Line will provide benefit to people who drive down 270. Uh, you know, one of the benefits of the Purple Line is it will result in fewer people uh, driving on the Beltway than would otherwise be the case. Um, it will enable people to have a smooth connection from, say, Rockville to Silver Spring. Um, you know, it, it, all transportation investment has a generally positive effect on all transportation uses. So, uh, you know, but if this isn't the explicit project intended for impacting the what you experience on 270 right now. And for that, you know, we really need the state of Maryland because Montgomery County doesn't, you know, 270 is not our responsibility. I hate to say it, but like it's well beyond our capacity sure. to deal with an interstate. Uh, that's a state of Maryland project, and we need the state to, uh, you know, get focused on that and try to make some changes. And we we have the county has um, look proposed a, a set of changes that we would like to see for 270. Uh, but the state, you know, has to kind of pick it up. There is a fairly small-scale project that's moving forward with 270 that is going to have a positive effect on, you know, various kinds of, of travel time at various points. You know, the governor put forward a $100 million public-private partnership, you know, to address a lot of different interchanges and, and you know, on-ramps and off-ramps and things like that. Uh, but, you know, we it's... I, we, we have to do something about 270. I don't think there's any question about it. Yeah. And uh, we hope to work with the state of Maryland to get that done. Yeah. Was there unanimous support for the Purple Line project among the county council? Well, you know, uh, when people have to cast a vote, uh, they're very reluctant to vote against it. But <laughs> they, you know, they uh, they talk it down as much as they can. You know, they... they uh, so, you know, in my, feel, in, my, in my opinion, not really. Um, there was a really crucial moment several years ago when uh, we were preparing to go to the state of Maryland to push for a gas tax increase and to, um, you know, really express the county's determination and commitment to the Purple Line and the possibility of bus rapid transit, which is an interesting and useful project was competing, you know, for the state, for the county's prioritization. And a lot of the advocates of this countywide bus rapid transit system, you know, were coming in to meet with me and they were saying, look, the purple line is never going to happen. Never going to happen. You know, Hans, you got to get behind this countywide bus rapid transit thing. We can go to the state and ask for that money because the federal government's never going to give us money the state's never going to give us money. It's a lost cause. And that was very much of an explicit message, you know, coming forward from advocates of a, of a, what I think was a very poorly thought through, very risky and not very necessary countywide bus rapid transit network. So several of us at the county council, you know, and I think no question George Leventhal has been a 
big champion on the purple line at the county over the years, you know, really resisted that and refused to become distracted at the last minute, you know, from keeping the focus on the purple line. And in fact, the capital budget several years ago, there was money that was diverted away from purple line needs and put into, you know, other expenditures. You know, we got a budget from the executive several years ago that basically didn't prioritize the purple line when it was necessary to prioritize it. And so um, Roger Berliner, George Leventhal, and myself really said that's, you know, that's unacceptable. And we pretty much threw out the capital budget for transportation and rewrote it and put purple line expenditures, you know, very clearly. And then, you know, once the county council supported that and became crystal clear, you know, that the purple line was still our top priority, the county executive uh, really helped us through in Annapolis and uh, helped, you know, line that up. So there, there have been very recently moments where there were very organized efforts to take, get the council and the county to take its eyes off the ball drop the purple line, move on to something else. And I can tell you, if we had done that, we would have absolutely nothing to show now. There, there would be no project. There would be no bus rapid transit countywide project. It, you know, there's, there's a lot of illusory. Yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a, there's a big illusion there. I, I do favor bus rapid transit, and I think we need to build networks and lines. But what they were talking about was just kind of a big illusion, in my opinion. So, Anyway, that's, you know, it has been feel, controversial. And it, well, I was going to ask you, did, did the council members, especially yourself, when the opponents were pressing the federal lawsuit and the project got halted, I mean, did you ever think, man, this is, uh, you know, while it's a lot of work and it, it felt like there was significant criticism from a certain um, fraction of the community and certain places – um, I, I'm hoping that this that kind of criticism never weakened the resolve by you and several other members of the the, the county council and and state leaders. This project has been in the works for some time now. I mean, I remember it for quite a while ago, and I think everybody collectively sighed in relief after the lawsuit was um, you know thrown out, and then the project moved forward. The governor backed it, not at first, but he did eventually back it, and and, and authorize this thing because I think it's really going to connect. I'm, I'm always looking at an education side of this. I think it's going to connect people to um, that want to come back from the university of Maryland that live in Montgomery County. I think it's a great thing. Uh, and I, and I appreciate the public private partnership councilman. And I, um, some people say uh, public transit is uh, you know, scrap the whole project. The, the uh, local government, county government, state government, federal government has no business being involved and public transit, but let's. While that might be true, there's the, the realistic. We're, we're, we're working in reality here that people need to get from point A to point B, and local governments have a responsibility to make sure that citizens are, you know, traffic flow is mitigated. These are core responsibilities I see of government. So I, I know it had to be frustrating at times when people were really pushing back against this this transit project. Well, the, the, the lawsuit was incredibly frustrating because that was really something that was funded by just a handful of people. You know, it, 
when you when you really look at it, there was a handful of people who, several of them live, you know, they bought property, budding the Purple Line route. You know, it, it was well known when they bought their own home that their backyard literally, you know, abuts the future Purple Line right away, the, the currently owned right away of the future Purple Line. They bought a house knowing that, and then they set out to protest, you know, the the construction of the, of the Purple Line. Um, you know, when the county bought the right away, we bought it for the Purple Line. We said, in the interim, we'll allow it to be used as a trail. Then a lot of people said, keep it as a trail. It's outrageous that you would ever, you know, not allow this to retain its sort of park-like status. That's the only reason why we bought it in the first place. Um, but the the lawsuit was very spurious, and the judge's decision was incredibly spurious. And, um, you know, it, the whole thing was definitely hanging on the edge of a – bouncing on the edge of a, of a knife. Um, and the lawsuit is not over, but – the court in rebuking the judge, I think is basically making clear that, you know, in their opinion, these decisions are best left to the democratic process, small d here, you know, that government has to work through its its process of electing officials and, and you know, the legislative process and all of that has happened and stopping a major, major decision produced through a legislative and electoral process based on a technicality is not in the public interest. So even if the, 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 you know, the people suing are found to have any to their argument, I think the court is basically saying we won't stop, you know, the remedy won't be to stop the line. You know, the remedy would be something else. So, you know, it's not done. It's not hundred percent done yet, but uh, we're very close, uh, but it has been, Enormously frustrating. And this judge, you know, this judge lives in Chevy Chase. And <laughs> yeah. I am quite sure, you know, that for decades, the dinner table conversation, you know, at this judge's house has been, oh, this, this horrible purple line. And, you know, personally, I think he shouldn't have taken the case. You know, I, I'm not going to say it's a conflict of interest, which is more of a, you know, did he have some kind of financial tie? But did he have an opinion about this issue? I'm convinced he did. I'm convinced he had a very strong opinion about the Purple Line before he began, uh, before he accepted the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think his the weakness of, of his arguments, you know, the, the flawed nature of his decisions really show a strong bias. And um, it's unfortunate because the judge is supposed to be impartial. And I don't think he is. I agree. Um, but it's moving forward. It's expected to be completed by 2022 if all goes as planned could you see could you foresee any hang-ups in the construction i mean it, it should be on they should have a plan an outline and begin construction and they should follow that plan and then by 2022 this thing should be ready to rock and roll yeah i think we're i don't see anything getting in the way at this point i mean um you know even if there was an economic kind of, uh, you know, like a economic shock that sent the country into, into recession, you know, the economic, the, the policy response to that would likely be more stimulus, more investment, and, you know, to pull out of a project that's 
creating jobs on the ground and you know in real time would really be the last thing that federal and state government would want to do so i'm i'm you know cross my fingers i don't i don't see any more roadblocks for this i think it's moving ahead you know it's it's unstoppable but uh you just never know i mean reading the history of transportation projects what you find is that projects get stopped you know there there are you can you can have the bulldozers out digging dirt and that project will stop and it never start again like it you just never know with transportation oh yeah i know and we're i'm glad that I'm glad it's moving forward, and I think that this will be a beneficial project to all involved. Uh, thanks for pushing hard against it. Um, thanks for, for being a champion for the project. I think that um, the community will wreak a lot of benefits from it, and um, this, is a, this is an example of good government working effectively on behalf of its citizens, and I've said this over and over and over. And I've been I've been criticized for the project um, for my support of it, and people say, "Oh, how could you, how could you call yourself a, you know, a, a libertarian and support public transit?" Well, you know, well, well, we we can't live in fantasy world. We have to operate in the constraints of reality as we have it. So, um, I'm glad that you are such a proponent of this project, and and thanks for all you do on the council. Um, I'm and I'm proud to. Uh, call you my friend and supporter of this project. So Councilman Reamer, you're a stand-up guy. Thanks for coming on on a rainy Saturday morning and doing this with us this morning and having this discussion. Thank you, Ryan. I think the project, you know, shows that on a bipartisan basis, we can get really big things done. And I think it's a success story that I hope people will look to across the country and they'll, they'll hopefully find positive lessons here and, it's good to know that it, as deeply divided, you know, as this country is, when you have uh, something big and compelling that's going to strengthen the economy and create opportunity for people here in Maryland, we can still get things done. It's it's a great story for us to tell. Yeah, I agree. It is a great story for us to tell, and it's an example to the rest of the country how um, – how we can work together um, among our intergovernment agencies. So once again, I wanted to thanks, thank you for coming on to the show. And uh, we're going to use this in, in, a, in a podcast. And um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on the Purple Line. And any updates, I'll, we'll reach back out and we'll have another discussion. So Councilman Reamer, thanks once again for coming on on a Saturday morning. Thank you so much, Ryan. Take care. Appreciate All right. it. Yep. Take care, Bye. too. Bye-bye.